Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. My guest today is Julie Owen, Dr. Julie Owen. She is an associate professor of leadership studies. She's at the School of Integrative Studies at George Mason University. So welcome, Julie. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. How exciting. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, when I start these podcasts, I always, at least for the guests that I know, and so far I've known everybody, I, I come up with three words that I think of when I think of that individual. And I was thinking about your three words, but then I decided, you know what? It's eight words because you have, you have the coolest title of any book <laughs> that I, I, I swear this is the coolest title of any book I have come across in a long time. Maybe since Marshall Goldsmith's What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And I think that might be 2015 or something like that, right? <laughs> so Julie's new book is titled, We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For. We are the leaders. We, I, I cannot wait to jump in and learn from you in, in our time together today. So before we do that, though, tell us a little bit about you and how you've gotten into this space of leadership education. Fantastic. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a faculty member at George Mason University in Virginia, uh, where I coordinate our leadership minor and concentration or, or major. I've been in the field for a long time, Scott. Like, I don't want to put ages on you and I, but it's feeling like one way you get wisdom is you stick around for a long time and talk to a lot of smart people, right? So um, I teach courses on leadership and social justice, and I teach a cool class called Research is Resistance about how we teach people to do research for social change um, and kind of interrogate the whole publication enterprise. Yeah, so that's what I've been doing these days, and sometimes I do some consulting and in my free time, I like to uh, read and travel. I'm supposed to be in Corfu today. I'm supposed to be in Greece and Croatia these weeks. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> not that you're not better than Corfu, but <laughs> sort of wish I was there. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, and I also, when, when I think of you, we were going to see Ida Bikel potentially in <gasps> San Diego a few years ago. And you know what? She she posted on Instagram. I don't know if you saw this, but she posted on Instagram that you could write her. And for our listeners, this is a musician. Ida Bikel, the New Bohemians was the band, probably back in the 90s, is late 80s, early 90s is when they yes. way hit. And they but they just had a new album come out in the last year or so, and it was awesome. So check it out. But she, I think for about a year and a half, she would write a song a day. And then when everyone went into shelter in place, she posted on Instagram, she said, write, write me a topic and, and we'll write a song for you. So she actually wrote a song for our family, which was so cool. I kind of want to so, ask you to sing it, Scott. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it's really, really cool. And so 
go on her Instagram page and tell her you want a song and she'll write you a song. It's really cool. It's really now, cool. Now, honestly, when you sent me that link and you said Edie, I did not put together. It was Edie Raquel. So I thought you were talking about some random, you know, amazing. But I was like, oh, oh my God, I'm so much more motivated right now. Um, I'm such a fan of hers. And she's collaborating with my favorite person, Steve Martin, and um, on musical theater and some other things. Um, so I'm just such a fan of anyway <laughs> yes 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 well let's jump into the to the topic of the day so we are the leaders we've been waiting for and again like i said i love the title so tell tell us about tell us about the book tell us about the origins of it and and what you're trying to achieve with the book and then let's maybe jump into a couple couple chapters Sure. Well, and I want to be clear, I didn't make up those powerful words, right? Those are great words we are leaders are waiting for. Um, what's really interesting is it took me a long time and a lot of sleeping to track down actually the source of that quote. So we probably remember Obama used some version of that in his campaign. People credit it to Grace Lee Boggs. But I think the actual nexus of the phrase we are the leaders we're waiting for is June Jordan, who's an African-American poet. Um, in the 60s, she wrote this beautiful poem calling, almost like a call to arms, and that phrase was in there. So I co-opted that and actually had fascinating conversations with people about whether it was okay for this white lady to use that phrase or whether it was that. Um, but every time I talked to people, they had a similar reaction to you, Scott, where people were, um, the students were like, no, this is, no one's going to buy a book called Women's Leadership Development. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we want something catchier. And they all, the students were what spoke. And the students um, said, it has to be called this. So I give them credit for that title. I do think it. Um, so I just finished teaching my last Women in Leadership class this week. And it was so nice to be able to repeat the book mantra back to them. So my closing words to them were, you are the women we've been waiting for. Um, and so I love that um, it causes people to see themselves in leadership. So I, I find it powerful. I'm glad you do too. Uh, that is wonderful. So, so talk about the origin of the book. What, what tell us that story a little bit. Absolutely. So I've been teaching uh, classes on gender and leadership for oh, 10, 15 years. And I was using Eagley and Carly's through the labyrinth. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book from 2007 and Kellerman and Rohde's women in leadership, both excellent, like empirically grounded books. But first of all, they, they don't have new editions. So it started to be uh, around 15 years ago, right? It started to be, be a long time ago. And then also those books pri focus primarily on women's achievement in corporate America. And my students were not down with that. I had a few, maybe one or two students who wanted to aspire to C-suite positions and be a CEO, CFO. But most of them were more interested in you know, being their own social innovator, entrepreneur, or getting into policy and politics and social activism. And so this narrow definition of what constitutes women's success was not working for them. Also, those books weren't intersectional at all, right? Which is written before intersectionality became sort of a really important thing. But the fact that identities were missing from all the stories they were telling, uh, when the students I teach are completely from all over the world and have a very diverse kinds of experience. So to teach leadership, especially around gender and leadership without taking race and religion and other kinds of things into account seemed narrow. And then none of them were developmental. They were sort of like, here are all the structural problems. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> you know, where I really felt like we need to, what you and I know as people who work um, with uh, college age populations is that we need to sort of bring them along with us. So what could students actually do um, to enhance their leadership? So that's sort of my nexus. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And, and I'm excited to get to that, to that conversation about what we can do as leadership educators. So this first chapter, 
a critical moment for women in leadership. So tell me about that a little. I, I would love to learn a little bit more. Well, first of all, this is almost impossible to write, right? So I wanted to write everything about the history of feminism and gender studies and everything about all of leadership theory and combine it all into one powerful. So um, it definitely felt sometimes that it was a inch deep and a mile wide, um, but I was trying to weave in all of these things. We had to start with today, right? With Me Too and all the things sort of happening, especially for women on campus who experience multiple kinds of oppressions. And so I didn't want to sort of brush over that. But I also didn't want to assume people identified as feminism, feminists at all, or even had a positive reaction to that term. So I really found myself looking at this social and historical context for women. And then also, guess what? Leadership is also socially constructed. So how do we also have to look at the social and historical context for leadership studies and sort of look at how those things intersect? I do think we're at a critical moment. Tell me a story that would encapsulate maybe chapter one. Well, if you're okay, I want to read you a couple of the scenarios I opened the book with. Please. might give you a sense of what I'm talking about. So here's just a couple to bring people into this narrative. I'm going to just see if you see yourself in these or students you work with or even your your kids or family members. Uh, You're the only woman on a team working on a group project in class. The teacher suggests someone in your group take notes. Everybody turns to you and hands you the pen. (laughs) Uh, the number of times I've put in the secretary role. Now I choose to reframe that because I think there's power in holding the pen. (laughs) So, um, but the number of times people face that Um, you make a, you make a worthwhile comment in a group meeting and everyone ignores your contribution. Five minutes later, a man makes a similar comment and everybody remarks on how clever and fantastic his idea is. Mm. So uh, women are silenced, especially young women in, in leadership roles are silenced all the time for just kind of how they show up. This also can be internal stuff, Scott. So like your friends encourage you to run for an office position, officer position in student government, but you decline because you don't want people to think you're bossy. Wow. Right. And so you're like, you are bitchy. Um, and so people conflate that a lot of times. Um, so listen to students do that. And then all these come from students. This one, next one, I hope I can say this on your podcast. Sure. You disagree with a colleague at work. And after you voice your objections, someone says, are you having your period? Wow. I know, which I, yeah, apparently this happens a lot. People have been uh, sort of using people's biological sex and, you know, biological functions to sort of denigrate them. Um, So I kept hearing this from students. uh, This next one, students tell me all the time that they were pulled aside by teachers and said, your outfit distracts the boys in the class, even if they're within completely within the dress code. So like, what kind of shaming does that do to someone or what is that messages that are inherent in that sort of story? Hmm. So, and, and then, you know, cause so many folks these days are gender fluid or non-binary. You go to use the bathroom and someone questions your right to be there. Wow. So these are just kind of narratives. So to me, these, I think, answer your question about how, um, what is the critical moment for women in leadership? And actually I would like to say people in leadership, right? Yeah. And it's, are we going to continue to have this nonsense? Like instead of sort of, some of those are overtly sexist acts, but we also have things called benevolent sexism, um, where we people think they're being helpful, but they're maybe um, putting you in your place a little bit. So, hmm. well, as a white male, it, it's a it's a reality that I am blind to a lot of other lived rea- realities. I, I know that much. There's a lot of lived realities and experiences that I just I. I haven't had. And 
it's interesting when my wife and I will have conversations because she will be out there in the community and certain things will happen. And it, and, and it always amazes me. I'm kind of floored at some of what she experiences. And it makes me think of my daughters who are 10. And, and, and how do we raise, it was beautiful. I said this on another podcast recently, Julie, but it was, it, it was, I was talking with Susan Murphy and we were talking about leadership development across the lifespan. So we were literally talking, you know, from two, three, four years old to retirement and older. We were having a conversation about even in, in, in grade school, how people begin to construct the notion of what leadership is and what are the possibilities. And so I was saying the other day, my daughter had done an end of the year project. It was a diorama of her as the president of the United States with her three issues that she was going to promote. And, and I just had, a, I had an insight that I don't know when I was growing up in the 70s, if that would have been the place that a, a young woman or even a parent would have gone. And so we are very much trying to raise our children, uh, whether it's our son or our daughters, that they can live into whoever and whatever they want to be, and they can rise to whatever ranks they want to rise. And But it's a fascinating conversation, because how often are those two young women, my daughters, and, and all young women for that matter, barraged and hit with reminders, or they're hit with norms, or they're hit with, sometimes subconsciously, I can't even think of the word I'm looking for, Julie. There's, they're, they're living in a reality that reminds them that they are not the stereotypical archetype. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would even just use the word patriarchy. <laughs> you know, yes. they're living. I mean, we're living in a you know where the dominant norm is still genderized and towards males. So, sorry, I don't want to like. Uh, no, I'm just mad at you now because you made me struggle for that. I just it was a case in point for my original statement a little bit ago. Well, you're absolutely right. So I, one of my, the chapters for me that I actually didn't have a lot of knowledge about, I should have probably talked to Susan Murphy, but. Um, was the how did we get here, right? Like how does gender gender socialization shape women in leadership? And oh my gosh, the research on girls is so fascinating. There was, first of all, there's not a lot of out there. And there was a very big, biggest scale study that I could find was from the Girl Scouts of America. And they're exploring young girl women, um, young girls and boys about their aspirations for leadership and definitely found that it was sort of Equal or women saw themselves or girls saw themselves as aspiring to leadership until puberty. And then this thing called the Ophelia complex. I don't know if you've heard of this. I haven't. Named after Ophelia. It's this idea that women start to face almost like a chilly climate. Um, I think you're calling women girls. These are for adolescent girls. But where they used to be sort of rewarded or feel confident about expressing themselves, all of a sudden they start to hold back. They start to censor what they, their aspirations even. So I love that your daughter made that diorama. Mm -hmm. Would she make it three years from now? That's the question. That's the, you're heading into the the scary waters <laughs> where how you support her and how she deals with the societal pressures around her becomes so, so important because it's when women start to opt out from leadership. And then there's also things that reinforce that, like chilly classroom environments where teachers call on boys and a whole bunch of stuff with that. If you haven't read, Rosalind Weissman has written, a, she wrote books that were adapted by Tina Fey into being the TV, the movie Mean Girls. Okay. So it's, her book is called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And she describes the treacherous waters um, for adolescent girls 
Um, so if you've seen anybody who's seen Mean Girls, any listeners who've seen Mean Girls, they get the idea, right? That girl clicks can be so powerful and harmful. And what Weissman research actually found is that the more vulnerable a girl is to that pressure, to peer pressure, the more likely they are, the more they like conform or seek to belong to those kinds of groups. They're more vulnerable later in life to sexual violence. There's all these negative outcomes that you actually can see in adolescence about if your child starts to give away parts of themselves to be in the cool club, um, what that means about obedience later on and their vulnerability to all kinds of negative, harmful things in the world. So it's so it's just I want to like reframe all our programs and go earlier into, into schools, right? We need to be working in these elementary and middle, middle schools about um, teaching leadership it can be for anyone. Yes. I mean, th- that was one of the main takeaways I had with my conversation with Susan is that because I've always, at least I've had this, uh, it was, it was un- unconscious. I wasn't aware of it, kind of a block that it occurs when people can start to get it or understand it or understand a problem solving model and then implement it. Well, there's a lot of work before that about just how even people are framing the concept. What is their mindset towards the topic? Based on what you've studied, how do I help my girls? How do my wife and I help our girls navigate those treacherous waters that they're about to enter? How do you think about that topic? What are some some things that come to mind for you? Well, one of the things I was so careful in the book is to not raise questions without strategies, right? Um, so again, wanted this to be really applicable. There are people who've written really powerful ideas. One is to like surround them with powerful women's powerful girl stories. Nice. So we look at, I, I write a little bit about Disney um, and all the Disney messages about gender and leadership, right? So are you Ariel and you like give up your legs for the van of your dreams or, you know, you know, like, or like give up your whole, your whole community. I guess she takes on the leg. But so there's just a lot of negative messages on some of those movies and Disney has started to become, finally they're hiring more women and now you're seeing more feminist messages in things like Frozen, you know, where the true love is their sisters or, yes. um, so I think it's been fun to sort of see that we surround themselves. And then there's been a movement called Ban Bossy, hashtag Ban Bossy. Okay. Um, and so instead of telling girls they are being bossy, um, what if we reframe that as the nexus of leadership, right? Mm. So sort of honoring that. There, in order to promote girls not critiquing each other, there's some social media movements where you uplift peers. So like say three great, great things about that have happened to your friend. Yep. Versus all of the negative, this person did do that. Some of it is like students are actually reaching for something to talk about. So if you can teach them how to talk about positive things as much as it is fun to be dishy and talk about gossip, you can actually reinforce um, positive things. So here's like, there's a couple lists. Use social media for good. Okay. Um, yeah, share, share two to two, hashtag share two to two. Encourage girls to share out another's achievements on at least two social media outlets with the goal of replacing, you know, selfies and sexualized content with positive affirmations of friendship and support. Teaching them about using body language and not to shrink themselves mm. in, in the face of manspreading and other yes. kinds of things. Yes. <laughs> so teaching them it's okay to take up space and to own their space um, and to not, to normalize giving and seeking help. How do they identify sources of support? Again, girls who feel fear reaching out are less likely to get the resources they need hmm. when they're facing crises or challenges. So just 
I'm sure you have such an open, warm, loving relationship with your children. And so, you know, you can't underestimate the value of just being there for them. Emphasizing mastery instead of performance. Like you learned a lot. You didn't win, but boy, your soccer playing is so much better, right? Sure. So not tying success into sort of results. You find that with your girls? Yeah, yeah. So the the, the work of Carol Dweck had a large impact, at, at least on how we're framing parenting. And so I actually try and with them, I just had an article pub- published in the Journal of Management Education. So I was very excited about this. I'd been rejected by the journal in the past and an article totally died. When I first put this in, it was rejected and it was about a two-year process, right? And so for instance, kind of reframing failure for them and modeling that, hey, daddy even fails, but I'm I'm shooting big and I'm trying. And you know what? That's a part of growing and that's a part of of kind of knowing that you're out there and you're trying things. And so, but the growth mindset kind of, are you in the game and are you giving it your best? That's what we're asking for. And so it's 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 really, really interesting though, because I think you're exactly right. We're at this, we're at this point where YouTube videos and all these other things are starting to kind of take over and their own impressions of what is cool, admirable is being shaped and and kind of being released from some of our control. And so how do we, you know, set up environments where whether it's what they're reading or what they're experiencing so for instance, my wife, this was a brilliant idea. She and about f- six other mothers, this is probably two years ago, started a book club. And the goal is that this book club stays intact through high school. So these are all young girls. They're, they started at eight years old and they read a book and then they get together monthly and they talk about the book. And so that's another outlet where Love some that. of the books that are being chosen are representative of strong young women or or stories that have great meaning and and because each child picks a book that has meaning for them and that's what everyone else reads but it it really is an interesting very relevant for me at this moment topic just because i want to be supportive i want to be helpful and raising confident strong young women who believe in themselves and believe that they can in their heart rise to whatever levels they want to rise to. It's a fascinating topic. It just is. I love that. I, what a great example. And kudos to you and your partner for doing that. And just to think about having them be in, actually in community with other girls around something positive, as you said, where the focus isn't necessarily a screen or who did what to whom. <laughs> so I can see all the ways that would work to like create a shared sense of community and to build trust and learn how to communicate even if it's about hard things and um, see a whole bunch of positive outcomes out of that. So yep. kudos. Great. Well, and, and another thing that, and again, this is, this is Jessica, my wife, this isn't me, but she's brilliant when it comes to some of these, but the girls also have developed a wonderful literacy around emotions. So they can pretty readily name how they're feeling And my wife is, again, brilliant at helping them understand what they're experiencing, why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Obviously, the last couple of months have been a shift. And so it's it's amazing. It really is. Well, Well, we haven't talked about when girls go to college, but I didn't know, and I don't know why I was slow to this data, but women suffer from anxiety disorders in college almost twice as much as men. 
Really? So I just had, yes, I had no idea because uh, that has not been my experience about who I've seen suffering from different kind of mood disorders, but it's, it's maybe like it's between a third and a half, but it's, it, there, uh, there are, are men. Um, so it's pretty amazing how many women are suffering from those kinds of things. And I think what you're giving them that defense to be able to articulate, name their moods, not be of shame in their emotions, to be able to work that out. How powerful. Trying. And again, <laughs> I have a wonderful leader. I am, I'm just the first follower trying to be supportive. So, so, so with the time we have left, Julie, what I would love to do is explore two specific conversations. If I'm a young woman and I want to develop my leadership skills, what are some things I should focus on? And if I'm a leadership educator, what should I be focused on when it comes to this topic, women in leadership? Again, I'm a, I'm a white male leadership educator. Oftentimes, and, and this happened to me last fall. It was amazing, Julie. It was beautiful. A young woman walked up to me after class. I'd had a panel discussion. There were, all four, there were four white men in the panel. I didn't even realize that I had just put a, something into motion where there were just four white men from an accounting firm on the panel. And she looked at me and, and I'm, I'm thankful that she, that she took the initiative to say this, but she said, you know, moving forward, if we could have some representation of women, I would love it because this felt like another event where we just prop up people that don't look like me. And how beautiful. Because I was completely blind to the fact that, that that's what had been done. I applaud you for creating an environment of trust where someone felt like they could say that to you. Because more often, if someone is really, depending on the community that they're creating, the climate they're creating, they just walk away hmm. and they start to discount their whole course or they discount the messages they're getting because you weren't taking their identities into account. But the fact that she felt comfortable kind of telling you that speaks to the climate you created in the classroom and who you are as a person and your learning centeredness. So best days are when students give you critical feedback, even though you want to run away just to sort of <laughs> lean into it. Uh, Brene Brown, I'm sure you oh, yeah. Brene Brown. Um, she writes a lot about like, what am I supposed to be learning here? <laughs> so when, when you have the fight or flight about feedback to like sort of stay in it and say, okay, what messages can I receive from this? So yep. fantastic. What a great story. Um, glad that you well, and and it, but it's symbolic of what do leadership educators need to be aware of, and and as they're designing or as they're serving as architects of programming, what do they need to have on their radar? And so let's start with let's start with uh, I'm an individual. I want to develop my leadership, and let's focus on on young women or women in this in this conversation. Uh, what do they need to focus on based on your expertise and wisdom? What are a couple suggestions you have? Well, one is, and this actually comes from the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership, the MSL Scholarship, um, which is a empirical research study of college students by John Dugan and many other collaborators. But anyway, it's that we keep finding that women are scoring higher on capacity for socially responsible leadership, which in some ways in itself is gendered, right? If you're looking at a social change model, collaboration, common purpose, we might think of those as stereotypically feminine sort of traits. So it's not surprising, at least it wasn't to me, that women were scoring higher on their capacity for socially responsible leadership. The kicker was we came to look at their efficacy, their belief that they were capable of leadership. Guess who was scoring lower on that, right? So women were scoring lower on their belief that they could do it. And so how do we help girls and women align their confidence and their capacity? Yes. Because I, this is definitely true in my institution. 
which is almost open access. We have so students coming in from all over. Um, they have so much talent and skill, but they don't believe they can use it. So they're not gonna, right? So we prevent an act of leadership. They're not enacting it if they don't believe that they can, even if they have all the capacity in the world. So first of all, we got to connect those two things. So doing good Bandura efficacy building, if you're a nerd out there and like your <laughs> um, social learning theory, right? But yeah, you know, we need to build people's efficacy or leadership. And there are all kinds of ways to do that. And some of them are, you know, um, Bandura has fancy terms like an active mastery, but that means just what you're talking about, like with your article, trying and not being afraid of failing. It means having mentors and role models to do this work. So there, uh, there's a whole bunch of things to do for that, but that's the most important thing. And then we need to interrupt these unhealthy cycles for women. We didn't get to talk about this yet, but one of the things I think that surprised me in the book is this idea of effortless perfection. Okay. And again, I think this is media driven, but that girls, especially in women, feel like they have to be perfect all the time, wow. but that it doesn't take any effort. So to look perfect, get perfect grades, be the leader in everything, but not show any struggle mm. with that. And it's coupled to me becomes insidious, right? It's bad enough to have to feel like being effortless perfect because no one's perfect. Yep. But that is coupled with something called imposter syndrome, which is the worry that you're going to be found out. So you see this vicious cycle, right? Of like, I need to be perfect. Oh my God, I'm not perfect. Yes. Someone's going to find me out. And this is where that anxiety school for me. So I try to tell my students, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. I don't know who said that, who wrote that, but uh, stop doing that. And, and sort of no one is perfect. Um, this language, my nephew introduced me to this terrible language of the tryhards. Do you know this language? I don't, uh, I don't. You're such a try hard. It's a bad thing. Like people who show that they studied or who it's almost kind of similar to extra. You're extra. And I'm like, what? That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Sounding extra. That seems great. Or like, oh, that's so nice. They're trying hard. And he's like, no, 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 you're not getting it. So, he, you know, he's been educating me that I am misinterpreting. These are supposed to be slurs, oh, right? Wow. These are ways to denigrate people. And I'm like, no, I was like, gosh, we got to nip that in the bud, right? That's some unhealthy language to critique people who are try as tryhards. Um, so anyway, I'm sure millennials are out there laughing at me. <laughs> so. <laughs> so those are a couple of things I think women can do. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And how about if I'm a leadership educator, if I'm a program architect, I'm putting, putting together, regardless of age, what are some things I should have on my radar? Well, this is this idea of, um, I don't know if you've heard of the language of precarious pedestals no. of leadership. And so this is this idea that most of the research that's been done in the past and even how we practice leadership is we sort of look at how women lead differently than men. So all of our research, all of our programs are framed in these like comparative and binary ways. And feminine leaders are like caring, and collaborative, and male leaders are like assertive lone wolves. Which again, doesn't describe you, Scott, at all, right? Like you're the most collaborative, caring person I know. So this is messed up. We have to stop doing that. We have to stop um, having these comparative kind of binary approaches to leadership because it makes for a precarious pedestal. If I'm a woman that leads in more agentic, assertive ways, all of a sudden am I not a leader because I don't fit women's ways of leading? Or if you're a caring, collaborative male leader, Scott, does that mean you're less of a leader because you don't fit the lone wolf archetype, right? Yes. So that's reinforcing like this... How to, essentialist and heteronormative ways of being. So we've got to like re-language all of that. Hmm. So I encourage leadership educators to do that. I use a, I draw a lot of Paige Capercurrent and Dan Telepa had a wonderful new direction of student leadership on gender um, that I stole so much from. So I shout out to them. Thank you, Paige and Dan. Um, but they include Heather Shea and Chris Wren's work. Um, they talk about moving from feminine to feminist leadership. 
And that's what we're talking about. Like stop talking about feminine ways of leading and start looking at feminist leadership where you actually kind of own your story and like how you acknowledge power and leadership. So there's some really good readings, I think. So anyway, so I just feminine and feminist leadership, I think that's an important distinction to make and to make sure our programs aren't setting up gender differences to be on precarious pedestals. Because I don't know if you, at my campus, we're also finding, I'm having more and more students identify as gender fluid or gender non-binary. So a little struggle I had in this is like, is this book even dated itself? Is it even too late to write a book about women leadership? Should I be writing more broadly about gender and leadership? Especially, I know a lot of women's centers are now becoming more inclusive around who that space is for. So I, I have a little moment of like, is this whole concept of women's leadership outdated? And then I had to read, students told me, no, we still need this because of all these issues we've talked about for the last hour. So. Sure, sure. And it, it may not be on the cutting edge, but it's a bridge. Tell, talk more about the distinction from, and, and you just said it, would you talk a little bit more about feminine versus feminist leadership? Is that Was that the distinction that you said? That's it. Um, so again, and this is the work of uh, Heather Shea and Chris Wren. But so this idea of, to, there's three interconnected tools of feminist leadership. We're talking about feminine leadership. We sort of are looking at what women do better than men, or it's always comparative. And we put people on these pedestals of you're a great women's leader. It's just like Serena, if you watch like tennis at mm-hmm. all. Like, are, you're such a good, you're, are you the best women's player in the world? She's like, I'm the best player, darn it. Right? Like, so all these places, and thank God Andy Murray, I don't know if you're a fan, but he like relanguaged too. And so there's more and more places instead of looking at, are you the best women's leader? You know, are you, let's get rid of all that and talk about who's good at leadership, mm-hmm. right? Who's good at tennis instead of having to genderize it all the time. So getting rid of that, I would call that like feminine kind of approach, this binary comparative approach and move into feminist leadership. And they have sort of three elements of feminist leadership. One is using and subverting power structures. So basically how do we counteract feelings of powerlessness that many women face um, and work to balance power? Second is complicating difference, which means don't let people get away with these dualistic notions of gender, Mm. you know, man, woman. And then also I add dualistic notions of leadership, leader, follower, right? Like I like to teach my classes and say, we're going to have, we're going to teach welcome to leadership 101. We're not going to use the word leader at all this semester. And every time you do, I'm going to buzz you, you know, (laughs) I was like, let's talk about what happens without embodying in a person. How that's <laughs> what word do you use if you're not using leader and follower? Are you using collaborators? Yeah, or I just said, let's, yeah, let's talk about, let's see if we can talk about leadership and the drivers of leadership without talking about the per, maybe a person centric. Mm. So um, it's really hard to do, actually, if you get into it. Yes. Um, and this, this actually leads to a was funny moment in the book where um, one of the chapters, like, de gendering leadership. We have to stop this binary nonsense. We need to, Talk about leadership as a non-gendered experience. And Trisha Tighe, who's at University of Denver, um, I had this amazing group of women called I invited to be critical friends. Yeah. Where they met as I was writing the book and they were tearing the book apart behind me and making it better and more inclusive and more intersectional. <laughs> so I relied on the brilliance of emerging young scholars who already thought you have a lot of so much wisdom, but often not honored for that wisdom. She's like, Julie, I think you're talking about regendering leadership. So I couldn't come to terms. I was like, she's like, because we live in our bodies. We can't disconnect the leader from the process. We can't connect the, disconnect the gender from the person. So this is getting way too philosophical for <laughs> thronesis. Thronesis, which is apparently about action. Um, but, but so I didn't I didn't answer the question. So in the chapter I write about, is it degendering or regendering? And I raise it for people who are using the book to do their own exploration. Wow. 
how we roll. <laughs> and how about one more? How about one more for program architects? And then we're we're going to close it down here in a little bit. I have I have three lightning round questions for you. But oh, good, okay. <laughs> but but maybe one more for program architects considerations. I would say word choice matters. Marketing matters. You know, I used to teach a class called at Maryland University of Maryland called Advanced Leader Development. And again, the people who felt confident taking that class tended to be white men who were in positions already. So I was like, who am I developing here? Uh, you know, they were great. They, we had amazing courses, but there was many communities and identities who were not having the confidence to sort of show up to advanced leader development. <laughs> so, so then we changed it to change making, right? I can't remember, but it was something more inclusive. And all of a sudden it, it was amazing how changing one word on the name of our programs and classes shifted who showed up and who felt comfortable coming. So um, I do this. I mean, I feel like this whole women in leadership, I've been having great success teaching courses on women in leadership and having people who actually would never take a feminism class or women gender studies class show up. Yes. And so it's almost subversive and they're, and they're like, I didn't think this is going to be about this stuff. And then they were like, I think I'm a feminist, like by the end, which is not necessarily, I mean, it's a subtle goal of mine. It's not in the syllabus. It's not in my goal. <laughs> but it's amazing how we're able to teach, you know, we're attracting, I'm attracting populations who wouldn't show up at sort of a feminist program by using women in leadership. Yeah. Hmm. So what do you call it? What do you call it matters? I love the notion of words matter. And I'm at least as I've had conversations with different individuals on the podcast, I think of, uh, there's a gentleman, I don't know if you know Ed O'Malley, he's at the Kansas Leadership Center. And they have done a very nice job of how they craft their language. And it's really, it's had an impact on me. And then it, it, it resurfaces here in our conversation about how language matters and who we attract and I'm looking forward to reflecting on that because I, I know I have some work to do in that space for sure. And we all do. And again, I, like I said, being open to students telling us where they feel included or not seen is really important. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Julie, so I have three questions for you. And, and the first one is, what are you streaming right now? What are you watching? And it could be something that's reminding you of of leadership or <laughs> kind of aligns with the conversation we've just had, or it could be you know, Tiger King, who knows, which is a, <laughs> an example of bad leadership through and through. But uh, what have you been watching lately? Well, yes, definitely. I guess a couple things aligned have been um, my students have been really into the show Unorthodox, which is about a woman leaving Orthodox Judaism and all sort of the feminist journey. So that's um, on Netflix streaming now. So I've been watching that. I'm not done with it. So don't spoil the ending. Um, um, but more, I've been more interested in, I don't know. I love Snowpiercer, the 2013 June Ho film. Um, I don't know if you read the book or seen the movie, but now there's a TNT no. series on it. Um, so digs from Hamilton just premiered. Okay. So you got to check out Snowpiercer. It's this a post-apocalyptic, like the world is under global warming was so bad that we tried to put, see the atmosphere with ice. So we created another ice age. And the only way to stay alive is to be on this train that keeps moving around the globe to prevent freezing. But all the poor people are in the back and they have to struggle to the front where all the rich people are in the train where all the good stuff. Anyway, it's it's great. <laughs> it's a very snowpiercer. Check it out. You would like it. <laughs> okay. Awesome. And and it what what are some of the favorite your favorite podcasts that you've been listening to? And I know you mentioned you haven't been listening to them lately in the last couple of months, but are there podcasts that stand out for you that listeners might be interested in? 
Well, again, I, yes, because I'm not commuting, I'm not. And I have a very narrow, like I, because I think I think and talk so much about leadership. I don't do a lot of heavy watching in my, and listening about, although I need to do more of, of the phronesis. And that's, that's a great leadership podcast, right? I need to be listening to more leadership podcasts, but really I like the nerd. I've heard it's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I like the nerdist, um, you know, I'm, I'm really nerdy stuff. I don't know if you listen to Nerdist, but it's awesome. And Wendy, I haven't. Wendy Wagner introduced me to Pop Culture Happy Hour, which has become a great addiction, um, where they talk about Shit's Creek and Survivor. <laughs> and you know, Brene Brown. I don't know. I don't. I have a very eclectic, um, uninformed, probably podcast. What do you like to listen to? What are your favorite podcasts besides your own, of course? <laughs> besides, I really only listen to Phronesis. <laughs> Actually, that's kind of true because. Uh, the editing and such, but you know, there's one, there's, there's a company in California called Arc Invest Ooh. and they are all about technologies enabling disruption. And so this is, it's called for your innovation. And it's a, it's a podcast that, that talks about cutting edge technologies that are being introduced or shifting how we exist. So for instance, there might be an episode on micro mobility, you know, the little bird scooters and such, and they look at the economics behind those and the technology behind that. So that or maybe even how I built this is something that I've been spending some time listening to. I need to jump into the podcast that Dan Jenkins, I need to, I need to jump into that podcast as well. Yeah, not, not too much other than that, especially like you said, now that I'm not in the car, I'll listen to Joe Rogan sometimes when he has on a world-class scientist. I don't listen to, uh, and, and he's a, he's an interesting character. <laughs> yeah, he is. But if he'll, when he has on some some folks that are like David Sinclair from Harvard or Lex Friedman from MIT, I tend to listen to those as well. So, and and I like his interview style for them because he makes them he makes Neil deGrasse Tyson or Brian Greene explain you know physics in a simplistic manner, and I love that because I need that. <laughs> <laughs> and how about reading? Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fiction reader, so I probably read fifty two books a year is my goal. So yeah, um, I think it's because I have no kids, right? <laughs> I'm able to do that probably. Um, but I'm right. The best book I read recently is Barbara Kingsolver. I don't know if you read the Poisonwood Bible or know her, which is amazing. And her nonfiction is good too. She writes about local agriculture, um, animal, vegetable, minerals, great. But her latest one's called Unsheltered and it's so good. And it's a story about a family facing, facing housing insecurity modern world and they're in the house and it flashes back to the 1800s and like what insecurity looked like then and how we feel like we're progressing and solving problems but really these problems are ubiquitous and sort of always existed so but it's written in a really juicy like good way it's you know you can read it on the treadmill if you wanted to so it's, it's such such a good book so anyway i have a book club about that tomorrow night i'm so excited <laughs> well and so how can people find your work how can we learn more about you julie I'm uh, on, I'm terrible with, I do not have my own website or any, I know Scott's shaking his head, he can't see, but, <laughs> but um, about sort of the promotion of my stuff. I'm listed under, um, it's HTTP integrative.gmu, George Mason University.edu. So I can find sort of my bio and information and contact information. I'm at Julie underscore GMU on Twitter. And for the book, I've got some great news for your listeners. Um, you can get the book at Stylus Pub dot com stylus publishers um and if you use the code spr30 you get 30 percent off 
So uh, until June 30th. Yeah, until June 30th. Uh, Stylistpub.com. The book is We Are the Leaders We're Waiting For, Women in Leadership Development College. There's also a facilitation guide that includes modules for doing exercises on each of the chapters. It's also sold as a separate piece. Great. Well, Julie... You have helped us think differently about leadership. You've helped expand our knowledge. And for that, I am so thankful. We really appreciate you taking the time today. I hope you have an incredible summer. It's May when we're recording this, so we're looking towards summer. I know you are not in Europe right now and abroad, but uh, I hope I hope you have a wonderful summer nonetheless. Thank you so much, Scott. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I always find myself thinking in new ways. So I appreciate the <laughs> opportunity okay. for sure. <laughs> Take care. I have listened to our conversation probably two or three times at this point. And you know what? I have one primary reflection, and and that is that I have a lot of learning to do. So yesterday, I went to Amazon and purchased Julie's book. And I hope all of you do as well, because this is a critical topic And I think it's an opportunity. I know it's an opportunity for me. And I imagine some of you who listen today also see learning in this space as an opportunity. I think we owe it to our students as educators. And I think we owe it to ourselves as we learn and grow. So please, if you would, go ahead to the website that's in the show notes and purchase Julie's book as well. I think we will all be better for it. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.